eternity with us. And so it's, it's cool as you can just live life with people and connect with people and see Jesus reach people in a country that's just completely close to the gospel. For me, though, I, I kind of always kind of grew up uh, mission-minded. I was actually born in the Philippines uh, in the city of Iloilo in this kind of village hospital. I guess there were dogs in the room that I was born in, so that will tell you kind of the conditions. Uh, but just kind of grew up uh, just knowing and just loving missions. And uh, we actually ended up spending a few years in Cambodia, but I came back to America when I was about 10 uh, and lived the, my teenage years in the Twin Cities. But it was when uh, when I was 21 and I was really trying to see what, what God had for me. I was youth pastoring at the time. And, and so I thought, uh, you know, I really felt this kind of itch to go back to Asia. And so I actually went to uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, in the Philippines, which this was YWAM Philippines, so I was actually the only American. So it was, it was interesting. YWAM is pretty hardcore, but this was like hardcore to a Filipino standard, you know, where we literally ran out of like money for food at some point. And so um, it was just kind of funny because I would say like, look, let me just go to an ATM and just like get some get some money, you know, so we can buy some meat because I'm having rice and vegetables here, you know, and I actually lost 50 pounds, so. But it was kind of funny. Our leader there said, no, you need to let God provide for you and just wait for God to provide for you. And I'm like, well, he already did. That's why I have money in the bank. But, you know, it was the Lord, I think, taught me a lot through that. But when we were there, we were on this small island in, uh, it was called Bantayan in the Philippines. It's just a small, remote island. And while we were there, I was teaching this Bible study. And afterwards, this woman uh, comes up to tell a testimony. And she begins to share that a few weeks prior to that, uh, she, you know, she was really going through a hard time. Her husband had left her and her and her three kids. And it was a Sunday morning and she wanted to go to church that morning, but she only had enough money that day to either pay for the jeepney or bus to go to church or to buy food for that day because they didn't have any food in their house. And she said she said she just knew she needed to go to church. And so she loads up her kids on the bus, spends the last of her money to go to church, and she worships Jesus. And afterwards, she says a friend that she knew just walked up to her and just said, hey, God told me to give this to you and handed her a five-kilo bag of rice. And this woman stands up and just says, if you put God first, he will take care of you. And I'm just like, man, why didn't you teach the Bible study? Like, to see this woman who is just so passionate about Jesus, that her hunger for Jesus literally trumped her hunger for food. And to see that kind of passion in someone, I just saw that and I said, man, God, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to go and find people like her that are so hungry to experience Jesus, a living, real God that you can experience, that it literally trumped her hunger for food. I'm like, man, these are the people that I want to find. People that are hungry to meet with their creator. And so that's kind of when I received my, my call to missions. It was, it was kind of interesting, though. I, I basically went to the leadership in AGWM and said, hey, where's a good place to go in Asia? I want to go into an unreached area. You know, I want to join a team and, and just start working with them. So they actually directed me to Indonesia. So I, by myself, was on the way to Indonesia. Well, my wife... The team leader who was in Laos before is from her home church in Ohio. And so 
uh, basically she got connected with them and kind of started on her journey to go to Laos. And I hadn't even met her yet, but there's this thing called the pre-field orientation down in Springfield, Missouri, before you go to the mission field. I didn't even go to that, but my parents were going back into missions. They're in Burma now. And uh, so my parents went to this orientation and Heather was there. And so for all you mothers out there, you'll appreciate this, but I, I get this text from my mom and uh, no pretext, nothing else, just said, I met this girl, she's amazing, you need to marry her. <laughs> so of course I text my mom back and I say, thanks mom, I appreciate it, but I'll let you know when I find my wife, you know. And of course, you know, my mom says, well, you know what, I'll send you a link to her Facebook, you need to check her out. I'm just like, well, thanks for making it weird, mom, but you know, that's what Facebook's for though, so I do. Uh, and I, you know, I just go on her Facebook and I see how on fire she is for missions and just the Lord. And I remember just sitting there praying and just saying, God, you know, I'm never going to meet this girl. I'm just going to send this message. She's going to think I'm just some weird guy, whatever. So I send a message saying, hey, here you met my parents. Here you're called to missions. That's awesome. How'd you get called? Now, what put me on the radar for Heather, though, is that uh, there's this altar time that they have at the end of the week where they pray over all the new missionaries. And of course, my mom felt led to pray for Heather. So she goes up to the altar, lays her hands on Heather, and it was right at that moment that Heather felt the Holy Spirit tell her, this is your mother-in-law, which I think is hilarious. God's just like funny because for Heather, it's like, well, that's great. Where's the guy? You know, so. So basically, you know, Heather, uh, you know, we connect on Facebook and, you know, man, we just, we, I think, I mean, God just really lined that whole thing up, but it was funny. It was still I mean, I just felt really good. Like, I was like, God, I know this is the girl for, for me and, and that we should do ministry together. But Heather, man, she was just so passionate about missions and going to Laos. She told me as I was pursuing her, she's like, look, I'm going to go to Laos really soon. And I'm going to be gone for two years and you're going to have to wait for me. I'm just like, man, God, like, you're lining this up so well. Like, you know, I just, God, like, what, what can you do here? And so I remember praying and just said, God, I just pray uh, as, as Heather is just raising funds to go to Laos and to leave and connect with people and pastors, I just pray that they reject her and nobody gives her any money. <laughs> so, but Lord, your will be done. But see, the crazy thing is that's, that's what happened. The Lord is good. And so basically she stuck around longer. She didn't get the money to go right away. And so she says, well, as, as we continue to get to know each other and saw that this was the Lord had his hand over this, Basically, she says, well, I guess we can go together. And so we did. <laughs> we got married and, and basically went together. And so uh, I think it was not too long after we got married that we were staying with Lisa. And so, uh, man, it's, it's good. But uh, it's just cool to see how God just lines things up uh, to do ministry and gives us partners and, and, you know, has wise mothers. Can I get an amen out there? Anybody? So... Uh, but I, I have some pictures that I'd like to share with, with everyone here. As we did ministry in Laos, you know, we had an English center of about 250 students. And these were the people that we would mainly connect with and just people in our village and just living life with people. And so here uh, is one of our students, uh, New, that I connected with. And so uh, New, he would come over all the time. You know, and, and let me tell you this. This is, this is cross-cultural. This is anywhere you go in the world. This is true that if you light a grill and you put meat on it, men will come. It's just science. And so, uh, new, you know, and lots of guys I would have over at our house all the time. 
you know, they would come, we'd grill, we'd work out together. It was kind of funny. New, one of his first times over at his house, or my house, he just saw that I had a dumbbell. I had one dumbbell. And he just kind of comes up and he's like, do you, kind of confused look on his face. He's like, do you, do you work out? I'm like, well, yeah, I, I don't run, but, you know, I do. And so it's kind of funny. But he says, well, can I come over and work out with you? And, he, and he, you know, I said, yeah. And so it's funny. He would come over and, you know, I had that one dumbbell. So I would take it and i go, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, here you go. And then he'd go, one, two, three, four, five. But that just kind of was the start of our relationship. And he would just come over all the time, you know, and spend time at our house. And, you know, one time in particular, I remember it was just us and about eight guys. We're all just sitting at the house trying to figure out something to do. And uh, as we were sitting there, I remember sitting there thinking, I'm like, you know what? I'm from Minnesota and I know how to fish. And mostly over there, they fish with nets. But I knew this Chinese market uh, that had fishing poles. So I went out and bought a bunch of fishing poles. And we all went out to the Mekong River and went fishing. You know, I tried to teach them how to use a lure and a fishing pole and stuff. And they thought it was interesting. Uh, but we fished for about three hours and didn't catch a single thing. Turns out a lot of the fish there are very small-mouthed. And so they don't eat lures. So learn that. But uh, so we come back defeated, basically. Like, wow, you Americans really know how to fish. And so I uh, come back to the house, and when I show up at the house, I can see my wife sitting on the front step. And she kind of has that stern wife look, if you know what I'm talking about. And so uh, I walk up, and she just says, what are you doing? And I says, well, you know, we're, we're fishing and stuff. <laughs> and a little backstory to this. We had just had a discussion, me and my wife, uh, that kind of marital discussion about budgeting. And I just went out and bought a bunch of fishing poles for all these guys. So... We have a little bit of a discussion in front of the house there. You could call it an argument, you know, basically an argument. But as I left, I remember kind of feeling down a little bit because I'm like, man, I'm trying to be an example to these guys. And, you know, just kind of had this argument with my wife. And, you know, I remember just leaving, just feeling a little defeated. But one of the guys as we were leaving turns to me and he just goes, teacher. They call me teacher because I taught English and they have a really honor culture there. And so he says, teacher. You are the greatest husband I've ever seen. Just like, really? But he began to explain to me, and he says, Teacher, never in my life have I ever seen a husband apologize to his wife. And it was just cool that it, it is so true that even in our imperfection, we are an example to this world of Jesus' renewing work in us, continually making us into a new creation, killing the old man, the old person, and renewing us into a new creation, that we are an example to this world. And so it was cool and new as he just witnessed this and lived life with us. Um, it was about after a year of just spending time with us. He never really said much, but I would, said much, but I would just share bits and pieces of the gospel with him. And as he was leaving our house one day, uh, he was leaving with another Lao believer that he was got connected with. And as he was leaving, he just turns to him and just says, you know, I've been hearing about Jesus and, and what you've been telling me. And I've been watching you guys, and I, I want to start following. And he's passionately serving Jesus now. It's cool to see as we just open up our lives and live life with people. The, the example of people seeing Jesus and coming to know him. We have another picture here uh, of a girl named Pui. And so uh, she would come over uh, a lot. It was kind of funny. Uh, when our little girl was born, she mainly came over because she wanted to play with our little girl, Aria. 
who was born over there. And it's, it's kind of funny because I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten asked this and I don't know how to answer it. But they'll come over and they'll play with our little girl and, you know, they just look at her and they go, wow, man, look how white her skin is. Like, how do you get the skin to be so white? And I'm just like, I, I don't know how to answer Jesus. I mean, you know, but over there, they, they really want white skin. In fact, it's impossible. My wife's really frustrated with this. It is impossible to find moisturizing lotion that doesn't whiten your skin in Laos. You can't find it. Everything, even a lot of bars of soap, right on the bar of soap, it says skin whitener. And you're just like, no, no, I want to be dark, like... Or whatever, you know. So I, I just I just don't care. But it's just kind of interesting. But this girl, she would come over to our house all the time and just spend time with my wife and, you know, my daughter. And after about six months of just coming over to our house, she just began to open up to my wife and just began to share with her. And she says, you know, uh, she's Buddhist. Laos is a Buddhist country, but it's very spiritual in the idea that they have a lot of spiritual worship. But it's not like they actually want to. They don't like the spirits. They're afraid of them. It's we need to appease these spirits so they don't destroy us. And so this girl began to share that she says, I, I am always afraid and terrified to the point where she says she won't even go to the bathroom at night because they don't have electricity. And she's terrified that a spirit, an evil spirit, is going to kill her. And so she said she just always lived in fear of all these spirits. In fact, they even have in Laos, they have what they call these spirit houses in front of every single building. Uh, that you need to off, put offerings in the spirit house to appease the spirit of the building. So if there's any building, they believe that if, you know, even if it's a big tree, it's like everything has a spirit, even a building. If it's a big tree, it must be a powerful spirit because it's a big tree. And so you'll see like little offerings in the tree and stuff. And so, you know, she began to share with my wife. She says, you know, I'm always afraid. But she says, you know what? I love coming to your house because I have no idea why. But whenever I'm at your house, I'm never afraid. And so my wife began to share with her, well, I can tell you why. It's because we have the Holy Spirit here, the Spirit of God who created everything, who loves you. And so would you, and she, my wife asked her, would you like to know more about him? And she said yes. And so she now is what we call a seeker, where she even says, she says she loves Jesus, but she's still kind of right on that edge where she hasn't fully committed to follow Jesus yet, but she's learning. We've connected her with a group of uh, believers in Laos that she's still going to weekly Bible studies. And so we're praying for her but, and just seeing how God is just encountering her. I have one more picture for you here. Uh, this is of a, a village elder. Uh, his name was Saul. And so in Laos, uh, they don't really let us freely travel the country, uh, but we, we're trying to get out to these villages in the countryside. And so uh, it's, it's interesting. Tourism has grown really big in Laos. And so you can actually get a tour guide, and then you have to get a permit from the government. And they'll kind of it's like a hiking or trekking, basically. You can go out to villages deep, deep in the jungle. Uh, you know, a lot of times you have to trek like 10 hours. It's extremely exhausting. Uh, but this was one village that we were able to visit. And it, it was cool because we actually were able to connect with a tour guide who was, you know, official permitted tour guide from the government. Uh, and he's a believer. And so we're able to connect with him. And so he goes and gets the permits for us. And we basically go to villages trying to make connections with people that we can share with. We can't publicly evangelize, but we're trying to make connections. And so this was a village elder that we really connected with uh, well. And so when I visited it, you know, we were there with some other missionaries that came with. And uh, we really connected with them. And so we came back with the plan to send out another team to go and visit with him and sit down with him and share with him. 
the creation story. And so we got this Lao pastor that we knew, and uh, we sent out another team to go. I didn't go on this trip, but they sat down with this village elder. And as they sat down with him, they began to share with him the, Christians, the creation story in his house, which is in the picture here. And as they were sharing with him, he all of a sudden just got up and he said, stop. And we're just like, okay, what's happening? And so he got up and he, he started walking uh, out of the house and he kind of went under his house and there's some posts there. And he reached into this little crack and he pulls out this tiny little booklet. And he comes back inside and he opens it and he begins to show them and he, he begins to explain to them. He says, 50 years ago, he says, I used to fight in the French colonial army when Laos was still a French colony. But then when the French left and, you know, the communists took over, he's like, I just came back to my village, which is just kind of a weird, interesting part of history. But he says, you know, I, I got this little booklet back then. And in the booklet, as they were looking at it, it was kind of weird. It was written in like French and Vietnamese and stuff. But as they were looking in the booklet, in the book, it was the creation story. And so he says, as you were sharing that story with me, he says, I've heard it before. In fact, this booklet was Genesis 1 through 5. And this old man had read that book so many times that he had the measurements of the ark memorized. And so he could just quote that whole thing. And so we're just like, wow, this is so amazing. This is such a God moment. But then they stopped and they said, well, wait a second. Have you ever heard about Jesus, though? And he says, no, I've never heard that name. Who is that? And so they were able to share with him. But it blows my mind that there is a guy out there that had to wait 50 years to hear the rest of the story. That he heard the beginning and then had to wait 50 years. It took us 50 years to get to him. It is so true in scripture where Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. How many more people are out there just waiting to hear the story? We need people to go. I'm going to just get into scripture here um, and open up a few verses. Uh, we, we can put it on the screen here, uh, or you can follow along. The first verse that we're going to open up is 2 Kings chapter 4. Second Kings chapter 4, I'll begin reading. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into each or into all the jars and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. This is such a challenging verse to me. Because I think this can reflect a lot of what God, when he comes to us, and when he asks us, and when he challenges us. In the beginning of this verse, you can see Elisha, you know, this woman presents him with a problem that, you know, she doesn't, the creditor's coming, she doesn't have anything. And so Elijah asks her, though, well, wait, she says, wait a second. He says, what 
do you have? And you can see her first response, which she says, I have nothing. But see, that wasn't true because she goes on and says, well, wait, actually, I do have a small jar of olive oil. God comes to each of us and challenges us and says, what do you have? And I think a lot of times our response can be, well, God, I have nothing. When that's not the truth at all. The truth is just like this woman, you just don't see the value in what God has given you. And this woman, I mean, she really, really, I mean, if there's someone that could say that they have nothing, this woman had nothing. I mean, just a small jar of olive oil. I mean, you can't really eat olive oil. And so uh, she just had this small amount. And so Elijah said, well, that, take that. And you can see this awesome miracle that, that comes out. But there's something that always, that always intrigues me in this, in this verse. At the very end, it says that when they ran out of jars, then the oil stopped flowing. Just a simple question. What if she grabbed more jars? She would probably have more oil. <laughs> and so it's, it's almost a challenge to me. I mean, we don't know how many jars she grabbed. She obviously grabbed a decent amount. Because uh, it was able to provide for her and her family, and she was able to sell them. And so, but it, it challenges me. It's almost like a measure of faith. You know, we want to see God do the miraculous, the amazing in our life. But it's like, how much room do we really give God to do the amazing in our life? To do miracles. You know, I can imagine this woman, imagine yourself in this position. You know, if if you're told, like, okay, go out and grab jars, like, Imagine this woman, like, how much faith did she have? Well, how many, like, what are you going to do, Elisha? Like, how many jars should I grab? Like, should I just grab one? I mean, I think that's enough. I don't know. She obviously grew more than one because it says jars. It was plural. But it's this just, like, measure of faith that when we, when we come to God and say, God, fill this in my life. I mean, it's like grabbing jars and just lining up saying, God, I pray that you would just heal my brother. God, I pray that you would just bring my family to know you. God, help me in finances. Like how much do we really challenge and just say, God, fill this part of my life? How (laughs) God is so much challenging us to say, what do you have? Because what you have is enough to be used by me to fill the rest of your life. But a lot of times when God comes to us and he says, what do you have? We'll respond with nothing. Or we actually give God a giant list of things that we do not have. And we'll say, God, I don't have a lot of money. God, I'm shy. Or God, you know, I'm just not skilled at different things. And God just wants to say, stop it. That's not what I asked you. I asked you, what do you have? I didn't ask you to give me a list of things that you do not have. What do you have? And there's this pattern throughout Scripture that you see this example. We're just going to open it a, a couple verses really quick here. Matthew 25. Many of you are familiar with this story. But we're just going to look at Matthew 25, verse 25. But you know this story. It's the parable of the talents where this master gives talents, basically a sum of money, to his three servants. One he gives ten, one five, and you know, one servant just one. And, you know, the servant with ten, he multiplies it, comes ten more. The servant with five becomes five more. But the servant with one, he was afraid, he said, and he didn't use what the master gave him. And you can see this in verse 25. 
It says right here, verse 25. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And the master in this verse says that he was a wicked servant because he didn't use what his master gave to him. But my question is, why was he afraid? He was afraid, first off, of the results, that he wouldn't be able to produce anything with just the one that he had. And I also think that he was afraid because he compared himself to the other servants. He sat there and said, God, like, or Master, like, look, he has ten. If I had ten, that was easy. That would be easy. If I had five, that would be easy. I just have one. What can I do with just one? And it says he was afraid. But the master said, you could have at least done something. He said, you could have at least invested it. You could have tried, at least tried, and something would have happened. But he says, you wicked servant, you didn't even use what I gave you. And he was held back by fear. There was a, in my father, uh, he actually didn't grow up uh, in a Christian home, but uh, when he was 18, he uh, started working construction. And uh, his first day on the job site, he remembers this. When he when he shows up, uh, he remembers that some some guys walked up to him, you know, people that were working with him, and said, uh, "Well, you better watch out. You know, we have a real Bible thumper here." And my dad remembers sitting there going, "Oh, great." And it was this man. His name was Dave Howard, and he he just worked on the job site with them. And every day during lunch, he would share, he would read a little scripture, and he would share a little bit about what he read with everyone there. And he was always ridiculed. People would make fun of him. People would just say, oh, you know, you Bible thumper, we don't want to listen to you and different stuff. And he was always mocked, except for one person that listened, and that was my dad. And it was shortly after that he started working there that he came to know the Lord. And shortly after that, he began going to Bible school. And he went to Bible school and then went on to be a missionary in the Philippines. But my question is, is this to you. If, if this man, Dave Howard, just a construction worker, would have said, God, I have nothing. Or God, I'm afraid. These people are ridiculing me. How me, just a construction worker. I just have this one. I'm just this construction worker. Leave it to the pastors. They have ten. They're educated. They have ten. I just have one. If he would have said that, my father would not be serving Jesus today. I mean, I can't even imagine that in my mind. Like, my dad, like, not serving Jesus? Like, what? But if this man would have said, I'm afraid. I cannot use what God has given me. But he was willing to use and just simply read his Bible every day. And to see my dad, who has served in the Philippines. Uh, He started the first Bible school in Cambodia. Now they're in Burma. And now me, his son, is serving in Laos. None of that would have happened if this one man would have said, God, I'm afraid. God, I cannot use what you've given me. One last verse we're going to look at here in John 6. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. We're just going to look at verse 9, though. In this story, you know, uh, where Jesus does this miracle and feeds the thousands of people. But you can see when the, when the problem was presented, Jesus tells the disciples, go out and see what we have. Again, Jesus is saying, what do you have? And the disciples go out and search this crowd. And you can see in verse 9, this is what they, they say. They come back to Jesus and they say, here's a boy with small, five small barley loaves and two small fish. 
but how far will they go among so many? There's, there's something that always bugs me about this verse, because, you know, Jesus takes this, uh, this, this little that this boy has and begins breaking it and does this miracle and feeds the thousands of people. But this is the thing that always bugs me about this verse. Now, the scripture isn't clear about this, but are you seriously telling me that among the thousands of people that were there, only this boy is the only one that thought to bring food? Really? I think there were people... I mean, obviously, a majority of them, you know, the scripture said they were hungry. So a majority of them, at least, you know, didn't have food. But I think there were at least a few, if not plenty more, that had some food. But the problem is, I think that most of them were just honestly selfish and afraid. That, I mean, if you can imagine, like, them sitting there, like, if you're sitting there and you just have, like, you know, a little bit of food. And you can see the thousands of people around you and they're like, man, I'm hungry. I didn't bring any food. And the disciples are sitting there, hey, does anybody have any food? Can they give it to us? I mean, sitting there with your little food like, man, if I give this away, like, I'm not going to have enough for me. But it was just this boy who was willing to answer the call of Jesus, saying, what do you have? And the boy coming forward and says, here, Jesus, and took all that he had and put it into the hands of Jesus. And you know the miracle that happened. But Jesus cannot do a miracle in our life unless we put in his hands and give him what we have to be used by him. It was interesting when I, uh, it was about when I was five years old that we moved from Cambo or the Philippines to Cambodia. And uh, for those of you that know your history, actually someone just told me you just had someone from Cambodia recently uh, come and share at the church. And so in Cambodia, it was, it was an unfortunate that, uh, you know, it was back in 91 that we were there, uh, that they had the Khmer Rouge come through and just kill about 25% of the country. It was terrible. Uh, in fact, if you were educated at all, they, they would kill you. If, they were, if you wore glasses, they thought you were smart. They killed you. If you worked in the government, they killed you. And so the country was just devastated. And so right after, you know, kind of after that had kind of blown over, my family and the country kind of opened up. My family went in there. And, uh, you know, as we were there, you know, I was about five. I have an older brother. He was about seven. And one day we're playing tag in front of the house. And uh, my dad had built us this tree fort. We go running up the tree fort. Of course, my brother doesn't want to get caught. And so he pushes me off the tree fort. I mean, he didn't mean to. I, or I don't know. Maybe he did. But, you know. <laughs> but he pushes me. And I fall 20 feet headfirst into cement. And uh, there was no doctors in the country because of how devastated the country was. Uh, there was no doctors that could help me. They, they found, my parents found some Russian doctors that did an x-ray on my skull to see what the damage was. And they saw that I had two giant fractures in my skull here. And they looked at me and they said that he's hemorrhaging in the brain. There's nothing that we can do for him here. He's going to die. But my parents began to send out a request for people to pray. And uh, there was actually one guy who, who came up and uh, it was kind of interesting. We, we were trying to figure out a way to get me out of the country. And so someone that my parents knew actually coughed up like $30,000 and paid for a medical jet to come and try to pick me up in Cambodia. But they still said that, you know, your son is probably not going to make it. But people begin to pray and call out to God. And so this private jet came and, and picked me up. They had to, like, make a, a landing strip out of the road and... And so they, it comes and picks me up. And as I'm on this jet, 
there was one man in particular. He was a deacon at a church here in Minnesota. That he, he heard the call to pray, and he felt he needed to pray. And so he got in his car, and he quickly drove to church. And he comes up to the altar at his church and just begins to call out and pray for me. And as he prayed, he just really felt God was doing something. And we correlated this kind of later, but that exact same moment that he was praying, I was in midair in this jet. And while I was in the jet, I just got up. And my mom was sleeping in the jet. She was with me too. And I walk over to my mom and I wake her up and I'm just like, Mom, what am I doing? What's going on? And my mom wakes up kind of delirious a little bit and kind of freaks out and says, Mark, what are you doing? You're supposed to be dying. But then she realizes the miracle that God had done and God had 100% healed me. And so I show up to this hospital in Singapore and they're just like, why are you here? Like, what's, what's the problem? And so uh, it was kind of funny. My mom had to make this phone call to this guy who gave us $30,000. And it's like, I hope you're, you know, I hope you believe in miracles because I got a story for you. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, you gave us this money for this jet. We needed it, but God did a miracle. And the guy just said, praise the Lord. You know, but uh, th- this is my question, though. That if that man who ran to church and prayed for me, if he didn't hear the call to pray and come and pray for me, would I be alive today? I don't know. I mean, there were other people that were praying for me. I don't know what God would have done. But I do know that when the body of Christ prays, it moves God's heart. But if we don't pray, if we don't open these jars saying, God, fill these parts of my life, fill this world, God, come, let your spirit come, use what I have, God. If we don't do that, nothing happens. If we do nothing, nothing happens. So that is my challenge to everyone here today. When God comes to us and he says, What do you have? What is your response? Do you say, God, I have nothing? Are you afraid? Are you honestly maybe selfish and thinking like, I I need to think about me first? What is our response to God when he challenges us to say, what do you have? What can I use? How can you pray? How can you share the word of God with people? How can you be used by God? Because what you have is enough. God has created us with the ability to be used by him. He has blessed us with all that we need to be used. He does the miracle. We don't do the miracle. We don't save people. We just share the good news. His Holy Spirit, his blood saves people. It's our job just to share with people. But we have to do it. We have to give God what we have. So as we go to churches, uh, 